This is the Infatuation Podcast, the show where we talk to Asian creators about things that we love. This is Curtis, and on today's show, we'll be talking to Phuc Tran, Latin instructor, tattoo artist, and author of Saigon. Hey everyone, how's it going? Welcome back to the pod. Today we're going to be talking a little tattoos, uh, 80s punk rock. Growing up is pretty much the only Asian kid in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Should be a real interesting chat today. And as usual, we like to ask people to come along to chat with us about these different topics. And so today I'm bringing in a former student, Belina. Hey, Belina. Hey, Curtis. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Oh, good. You're going with the Curtis instead of the Mr. Chin. I, I made a conscious effort. <laughs> <laughs> so this is Belina's first podcast with us, but maybe not her last. We'll see. So uh, Belina, you went to Galileo and you, and you had my AP bio class, we think, over 10 years ago? Over 10 years ago. Yep. That's amazing. Because it seems <laughs> like just yesterday. It and really so does. you grew up in San Francisco? Yes. Uh, Well, I was born in LA, but basically I grew up in San Francisco. It's all I recall. And so I lived there even in undergrad uh, after Galileo. Yes. After Galileo, I went to uh, USF, University of San Francisco. And so I stayed in the city even for college. All right. And you're a nurse now? And I'm a nurse now. Yep. How's how's the front lines? Has it been crazy this year? (laughs) These two years? it It was pretty crazy in 2020. So I started working as a nurse in 2016. That's when I graduated from undergrad. And I I worked in the hospital um, in what's called a telemetry floor. And then I went to ICU and I was doing that basically up until the end of 2021. Wow. Okay. Am I doing the math right? Yes. Yes. (laughs) And so I had seen, you know, the pandemic through the lens of the ICU. Uh, It was not easy. It took an emotional toll. and now I work from home. <laughs> so that's how that ended. Um, I, I do kind of case management type of work. Uh, it's still it's technically still a nurse role, but I'm no longer in the hospital. So, you know, all of the frontline folks who are still out there, um, I feel for them. Yeah. I'm here supporting them, but I've, I guess I've left the hospital. Yeah, no, I, that's probably a pretty common story. There's definitely people in education, people in all different jobs that are kind of on the front lines and rethinking their life choices. And yes, yes, options. it's unfortunate. There's a lot of burnout. Sure, mm-hmm. sure. So how about a little bit about your family? Your family moved here in the 80s? Yes, the late 80s, mid to eight ladies, I guess the process took a few years. Uh, so we are ethnically Chinese, but my mom was born and raised in Vietnam. My dad was born and raised in Cambodia, so they speak the language, they eat the food, and growing up um, at home, we spoke Cantonese, Chu Jiao, both are Chinese dialects, but my parents, you know, to this day, have still kept their knowledge of Vietnamese and Cambodian, uh, respectively. Sort of like culturally, like, you know, culturally, I'm more American than I am Chinese, so culturally, your your parents are maybe more Cambodian and more Vietnamese than they are Chinese, or? Yes, I guess you could say that, um, but I, I don't know when the executive decision came about that we would speak Chu Jiao and Cantonese at home, because I personally don't know much or pretty much I don't know any uh, Vietnamese or Cambodian. They call the language Khmer or uh-huh. you know, Cambodian. So huh. yeah. maybe it was just the, the common language that they all. <laughs> yeah. I think so. I think that was my parents' line of thinking when they 
you know, used uh, Cantonese predominantly because a lot of people in San Francisco knew it and it seemed more practical, you know, rather than Vietnamese or Khmer. All right. All right. Thank you for coming along on your first podcast. Yes. So excited. <laughs> and we may have to uh, have you be our um, BTS ambassador in April oh. when you go to Las Vegas for the concert. I'm ready. I'm only going to all four concerts. <laughs> I'm ready. Are you are you okay with wearing a microphone pack and recording some live reactions to the Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Absolutely. <laughs> all right. All right. We'll talk about that later. All right, but let's introduce our special guest coming all the way from Portland, Maine. We have Fook Tran. Welcome, Fook. Hey, hey, thanks for having me, guys. Sure. Thanks for coming. Yeah, here I am. Well, that was easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, no, let me give you the let's give everyone the full spiel here. Uh, so you have one of the more interesting resumes. I, I did a little stalking on LinkedIn, so don't be alarmed if I know a little bit about you. But uh, you got a master's and bachelor's in classical languages, and you've taught Latin for over 20 years. And in the meanwhile, you also became a tattoo artist, and you own your own tattoo shop in, in Portland. And in around 2012, you gave a TED Talk on the subjunctive mood. <laughs> And you're the author, and most importantly for us uh, today, you are the author of the book Saigon. And just for everyone out there, you spell that like a pun, not the city. It's S-I-G-H-G-O-N-E. So Saigon, a misfits memoir of great books, punk rock, and the fight to fit in. So uh, what's good in Portland today? <laughs> oh, geez. It's, uh, so um, you learn this when you move to Maine. There's a, there's a fifth season in Maine. It's called Mud Season. <laughs> Uh, and that's when like the snow melts and then it's muddy and everything just like looks super shitty. So it's mud season right now. Uh, so yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so not spring. So it's between winter and spring. Just also clarify. Mud. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mud season. Yeah. Is there a good place to get pho in Portland? Yeah, there are. Yeah, there's, there's a couple of Viet places. Uh, and then there's. There are like some like there's like a hipster Viet place, like Vietnamese restaurant that um, opened here. It was like nominated for like a James Beard Award. And um, so, yeah, yeah, it's not not so bad. All yeah, right. I'm you surviving. Know, kind of funny, <laughs> though, you in your book, you, you sounded so desperate to get out of the small town Carlisle. And yet you end up in a relatively small town uh, later in life, too. How did this happen? You didn't want to go <laughs> well, to the yeah. big city? Well, I know I did. I mean, and Portland, you know, to be fair, Portland is the biggest city in Maine, you know, which is not saying a lot, you know, it's sort of like saying it's like, it's the tallest dwarf. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, I lived in New York for like seven years okay. and then, okay. um, yeah. And then, and then my wife and I just sort of did the math on like having kids and buying a house and, yeah. you know, owning a business, you know, it's just in New York. I mean, it's just, I think much like in the Bay area, you know, you're just kind of running to stand still. Um, but yeah. my wife is from Maine, so ah, yeah. Okay, there's there's the answer. Yeah, that's the connection. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> okay, for sure, for sure. Very cool. Thanks so much for joining us. We want you all to read this book, and so we were gonna. I don't think we're gonna give away. I mean, it's not like a book that has a huge plot, you know, like necessarily that we can spoil the ending or anything. But uh, I'm gonna throw it out there. So if anyone wants to read the book before we talk about it, now would be the time to cut out. Um, usually, I play a little song to let people know when they can uh, give them a minute or two to cut out. What song should I have playing here? Hmm. Any ideas from the gallery? Wait, are we picking? Yeah, well, I'll just throw out something. We'll see if it, oh, it makes yeah. it. It's got to be okay. punk rock, doesn't it? Have yeah, to be a little... kind of, right? Yeah, something yeah. by Agent Orange. They're like a SoCal punk band. Okay. Or, you know, you could do Green Day. I think they're from the Bay Area. Bay Area, yeah, Ooh. yeah, yeah. 
Okay, that sounds good. All right, so we'll do a little music here, and when the music is over, you better be gone or ready to hear about this book. Sometimes I think you're both friends, but they all seem the same. Man, I see them and they can't remember my name. I guess fun just like them, I guess I'm just a bore. I can hate them, but I've never done that before. I got such a good friend, I don't want any more. So, Fook, why don't you talk us through the genesis of this book? Where, where did you get the idea or the desire? How did this, how did this all come about? Sure. Um you know, for like my whole life, I like really didn't talk about like my personal story at all. Like it just seemed too weird, you know, like, especially like growing up in my town, you know, in the seventies and the eighties, like there was like such a uh, emphasis on assimilation and fitting in. And so I was like, I'm definitely not going to talk about like being, you know, having a refugee family and the refugee experience. And, um, and, and certainly my parents, you know, sort of like bought into that sort of 70s and 80s ethos of like assimilating into american culture right this was sort of like prior to that like diversify and like celebrate diversity kind of a you know mindset in the in american culture Uh, and so in 2012 that was like really like the first time when i gave that tedx talk that was the first time that i really um talked about my experience publicly in a big Mm. way um and so, uh, so, you know, I kind of got up on stage and, and during the preparation for the TEDx talk, the, the coaches sort of used this refrain, like you were paired up, all the TEDx speakers were paired up with like, you know, sort of speaking coaches and um, public speaking coaches. And so the refrain was always like, this is a talk of your life. This is a talk of your life. And I think they were saying that because like they just wanted to like scare the shit out of you and like make sure you did a good job, you know? <laughs> But I took it really literally and I was like, oh, like, I guess if this is the talk of my life and this is the, the biggest platform I'm ever going to have, you know, this like auditorium of like 300 people or whatever, like I might as well talk about everything that's like really important to me, like be as authentic as I can be. Right. Yeah. So I'm going to talk about like, you know, being a refugee and like growing up in Pennsylvania and like growing up bilingual and like, you know, grammar and language and like the 80s and pop culture and Star Wars. Or it's like, you know, what's the worst that could happen in 12 minutes, right? You know, like, I'm just going to go for it. And um, I just figured if I was going to fail, I just wanted it to be yeah, a spectacular yeah, yeah. failure. And, uh, <laughs> but the feedback I got for the talk was really nice and, yeah. and really super positive. And, um, and so after that, I started doing these, like, live storytelling gigs in Portland and further afield. Um, very similar to, like, the Moth Radio Hour, right, but they right. were locally organized. And so, like, once or twice a year between, like, 2012 and 2016, you know, I'd get up on stage and um, I, well, I would write a story. It was like a seven minute story. And then I would, you know, memorize it or learn it, like the script that I'd written and then get up on stage and perform it. And they were always like true stories. Um, and after I did, every time I did it, you know, I would get like a lot of really great feedback. And so that really, for me, planted the seed of like, oh, I guess like I have a story that people want to hear, like the story that like I just thought was like, so, so weird. Um, and so in my brain, I was like, oh yeah, I'll, maybe I'll write a book like when I'm like 80 and like my, my hands are shot and like nothing, you know, my body's totally broken. I have like two fingers and I can just like bang that thing out. But, um, but then in 2016, a, um, uh, an agent, like a, a New York city literary agent um, approached me. She just like cold called me because oh. she had seen um, the TEDx talk 
And she was just like, Hey, you know, I'm this agent in New York city. Like I saw your Ted talk. Like, it seems like you have an interesting story and an interesting way to tell it. Like, do you want to, do you want to like write a book maybe? And I was like, ah, I don't know. Like I'm really busy, you know? Um, but that was really how it started. Yeah. <laughs> That's like the, the kind of short version. Yeah. Yeah. So let's get into the, um, the, the story a little bit. So 1975, the fall of Saigon. Do you remember much about that time or, or the, the gaps had to be filled in by relatives? Yeah, no, I don't. I don't. My first memories are from being in the U.S. So, uh-huh. so when we left Saigon, I was one and a half, maybe. Um, like I was the only grandchild on my mother's side of the family. Um, mm. So, yeah. Like, are we, are we doing this? Am I telling the story? <laughs> well, um, yeah, I don't know. Let's see. Uh, spoiler alert. You know, I, spoiler alert, I live. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think we are. Yeah, no, I think we are for sure. Like, you you had to leave. You felt like your grandparents worked for the government. Is that what I read? Yeah, yeah. They worked for the U.S. Embassy. And um, so, like, in, 19, in April of 75, like, when, like, you know, the shit was hitting the fan, like, they got... Um, you know, they got like visas or whatever it is that you need to get your family out, you know? And so they got, um, so my grandmother got, you know, her immediate, you know, family, like her husband, her kids, me, like the lone grandkid and my great grandmother, you know, my bako. And, uh, you know, now that I think about it, I think about like how up it was that like she, basically to my dad's side of the family she's like good luck sorry yeah. i only have i got 12 tickets i'm sorry you know That's i so only hard. have these tickets to bts yeah. <laughs> no more you know <laughs> yeah. yeah it's brutal it's so brutal yeah. but yeah so you know there were like 13 of us or however many and um so we were the ones who like got to leave you know vietnam when like it all went down and my dad's side of the family eventually escaped later but mm-hmm. um but yeah yeah, and you you tell the story that because you were just kind of a fussy kid, you might have saved your whole family by getting kicked off a bus for crying too much. Yeah, yeah, it was wild. Like so, you know, I mean, like we were like at the, you know, air. I mean, this is a story that like I didn't remember it, but like everybody told. Like sure. I mean, it was the story that like I knew because like everyone told the story so much. You know that. Yeah. You know, we were at the airfield waiting to get on a bus, and like you know, it's so, like just hordes of people, and these buses would pull up, and people would get on, and then they would take off, and then. You know, we're like waiting in line, waiting in line. And finally, it's like our turn and we like get on the bus. And um, I guess I throw a tantrum or I start crying like so much that like my grandmother's like, oh, like, <laughs> all right, everyone get off the bus. Uh-huh. This, you know, sucks, you know, which I think now like I'm just like, man, like how bad of a tantrum must it have been <laughs> to like make yeah. like you're on the bus yeah. to take you to the airfield uh-huh. to get you the hell out of Vietnam. And like, <laughs> like it must've been like the tantrum of all time. I have yeah. no idea. Like, yeah, I, yeah. But anyway, like for whatever reason, my grandmother's like, this is ridiculous. Like these, <laughs> we're going to like ruin this bus trip for these poor people. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> so yeah. So she made us all like all 13 of us get off the bus. We let the other people in line behind us get on the bus. And like it pulls away and like literally like 20 feet away, it gets hit by a rocket, it blows up, everyone on the bus dies. Man. And then we're like, oh, that was that was lucky. And then and then another bus pulls up and then we got on that bus and then took off. It was just like, yeah. yeah. So yeah. Can you imagine like you're a dad, I'm a dad. Polina, you're not a you're not a parent yet, but you can imagine, but your parents might have told you stories. Mm-hmm. What? Oh man, I just kind of imagine. Packing up, and your parents were young too. Were they? They're early twenties. 
Yeah, 25. And your dad's a lawyer and had aspirations of going into politics. And then he has to leave all that behind. And I think you mentioned that they had it boiled it down to a like a box of photos and a handheld suitcase. And that that's about all they could bring with them. And can you yeah. imagine as a dad, like making that kind of decision? And well, I guess it wasn't that much of a decision, but just that kind of experience of uprooting your family with a, with a relatively young child and going to another country. Yeah. I mean, I don't think, yeah. I mean, like you said, I think, I think there wasn't, I mean, the, the choice was like stay and die or leave, you know? And I mean, at least they're leaving under the auspices of like the government, you know, yeah. I think as opposed to just like fleeing, you know, like fleeing to some country illegally, like, you know, like what's right. happening with like Syria or like Yemen or, you know, any number of other places, but I think Syria in particular, I mean, like, mm-hmm. You know, there are Syrian refugees who are just like paying pirates to like put them on a boat and try to get them to Greece and all kinds of like crazy yeah. stuff like that. That's brutal. Yeah. Did you get sponsored by a family to Carlisle or how, how did you end up in Carlisle, Pennsylvania? Yeah. So there were, um, so there were like four, you know, Vietnamese like relocation camps and we got sponsored by these like nice Lutherans in Carlisle. And so um, we just, you know, it was sort of like they couldn't, you know, as far as the U.S. government was concerned, like they couldn't just sort of like unleash these like these <laughs> people who like no knew like didn't know any English, like yeah, knew yeah. nothing about American culture, and just like been like, "Ooh, good luck," you know. Yeah. So they just sort of were like, "Okay, like here are these like nice people who are just volunteering to be your like mentors, basically for like how to survive America." Um, yeah, yeah. So uh, let's talk. Let's talk a little Carlisle, Pennsylvania. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so you end up in Carlisle and uh, what, how would you describe it? It's rural? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't, yeah, it was uh, like, I think at that time it was going to be like 17. I, I tried to do research as much as I could. Um, I think it was like about 17,000 people, 93% white, um, yeah. maybe 95% white. Um, so there were like, you know, black people in our town. They're, you know, lived all in, you know, mostly in one neighborhood. And then um, there were like a handful of Asian people, like mostly professionals. Um, and then we were like the only Vietnamese people in the town, which was like pretty wild. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and that was part of like, there was like a federal government policy designed to do that. It was called the refugee dispersion policy. Like you can Google it later if you want. But basically the U.S. government, when they're resettling those 130,000 Vietnamese people in, the, in 1975, what they didn't want was they were like, they specifically were like, well, we don't want all these people to just form a giant ethnic enclave and then never uh-huh. learn English. Uh-huh. <laughs> They're like, we don't want little Saigon, even though that's eventually what happens. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. So they were like, what do we do? They're like, okay, the, the plan is to like have them all live as far apart from each other as possible. Uh-huh. That way that will like accelerate, like, you know, language acquisition and acculturation and all that stuff. Yeah. So, so that's why we ended up in Carlisle as like uh-huh. the lone Vietnamese family. Yeah, yeah. Talk about your family for a second. So your dad um, studied to be a lawyer in Vietnam, so pretty high up there, and thought about being a politician, and then has to leave all that. And what does he end up doing in Carlisle? Driving a cement truck? Or? Yeah, his first job was driving a cement mixer, uh, and then he eventually got a job working in the tire factory. It was like the biggest, one of the biggest employee employers in the town. Um, that was, you know, that, you know, was sort of low barrier. Like my dad got a G his GED and then, um, well, he learned English <laughs> and then his, yeah. and then he got his GED and then he got a job at the tire factory and that's where he worked until they left Carlisle in the late nineties. 
So yeah, uh, twenty years. And he's a, he's a major kind of a I don't want to call him a character because he's 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 not yeah, a character. He, he's a person. He's a character. Yeah, yeah no, no. In the book, in the book, he is a character. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but he's he's definitely central <laughs> to your story. D, have you come to terms a little bit with his? You know, for us as as readers, is probably pretty easy to judge and pretty easy to say, man, that guy's terrible the way he treated you. But as as you've you know grown and and learned about his experience and your experience, where are you at with his the way he raised you? Where are you at with his uh, <laughs> his flaws? I guess. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, you know, again, like shout out to therapy. You know, like uh, I can't I can't stress that enough. Like I really I wish I'd gone to therapy sooner, but I guess you know better late than never. You know, like and I think that was like a huge breakthrough for me. Um, uh, you know, in terms of like, I, I think as much as possible, like sort of understanding accountability, right. And, and sort of forgiving myself for the things that I had internalized, like, and not thinking that like I was the fuck all the time, right. Not internalizing that message, right. Like yeah. that, that I'm not always necessarily like the bad kid or, you know, whatever, like the family disappointment or, uh, <laughs> you know, whatever, uh, yeah. all that messaging, you know, that yeah. healthy, you know, Asian parent <laughs> the messaging. Yeah. 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 Um, but I think, you know, I, I have as good of a relationship with my dad as I can. Um, I think like a big takeaway for me or a big breakthrough for me is like that. I, I just have to accept my dad for who he is. Like I can't, ex- I can't want him to be a person he can't be right. That's ultimately like really just leads to disappointment and is really selfish of me to like, I just have to meet him where he is. And if I can accept that, great, we can have the relationship that he's ready to give me. And if I can't, then, you know, we don't have that relationship, but, um, but I, I think that I can, I think like it was, I, I can hold two things, like two contradictory things in my mind at the same time, right. That like my parents sacrificed a lot, are incredibly mm-hmm. resilient, are incredibly strong, like suffered more than they can probably ever put into words. Right. And they were also really deficient and abusive and could have been better parents also. Mm -hmm. Right. Like I think, um, you know, like I think about like raising my kids and it's like, you know, Felina, like, I think it's like, you know, sorry, but it's like, it's, it is both like, I think simultaneously like the easiest and the hardest thing to do, you know? And the easiest thing is like, make sure your kid feels loved, make sure they feel safe. Right. And like, and you know, don't, don't beat them like you know (laughs) i mean like you know i so i think like there are some things that like i think um like i wish that like my dad had the sort of wherewithal or like sort of the understanding to at some point in his life be like is this am i doing is this am i doing the right thing like is this really helping my kid you know i don't you know but i think it's just like I'm asking him to do something that like, I think culturally he was just not able to do. Right. Like, especially in like a Confucian household where it's just like kids are obedient, right. They, you know, respect and obey their parents. They don't talk back. They're not really, you know, they're just sort of like accoutrements as it were. Mm -hmm. Um, So, so I think, I mean, I think, I think some of that tension and, and tragedy comes just from being bicultural, right. That like I'm holding my parents to standards that they, that they don't even know they're being held to and vice versa like the same thing is happening to me so i think i think it's just it's a byproduct of you know sort of like that first and first and then 1.5 generation you know where like i'm just like you guys don't even understand me and they're like what bitch like we put food on the table (laughs) you know like what do you expect what more do you You want yeah exactly exactly you know yeah 
<laughs> I mean, I get it as a, as a dad. You know, I I've never smacked my kid or anything, but I've gotten to that point where I'm, I'm raging out. You know, something inside of me is so upset that they're not listening, or or I didn't raise you to talk to me like that. You know that that feeling, right? And you know, I'm not excusing hitting a kid or or you know tearing up their room or anything like that. But I I can get the rage. You know, I can understand the rage a little bit, and you know, we all know that he went through a lot, right? And yeah, for sure, for the, sure. In the afterword of your book, you, you mentioned, you just put it like you did the best you could, you know? We, yeah, for, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I can acknowledge that, you know, that they, they definitely did the best that they could. Um, and also, like, sometimes they could have done better, right? Um, and, I, and I don't mean in a material way. Like, I, I really, like, I, I, I don't ever, I never, like, as a kid, like, I didn't ever grow up thinking, like, like, like the things that I list off as like sort of um, things that were like when I talked to my therapist, right. Or talked to my therapist, like it wasn't always like, Oh, and I didn't get this like lunchbox when I was a kid. Uh-huh. And there was this like cool, like $6 million man action figure, you know, it was like never a list of like <laughs> shit that I wanted. Right. Yeah. It was just like ways that my family made me feel or the ways that they treated me, which yeah. costs nothing. Like right. that costs nothing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just other than a little self-awareness. Belina, <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. did you think of your family at all as you're reading this book? Was it, you know, I'm not saying your, your parents are the same, but did you did you feel the fa- family at all as you're reading this book? You know, I, I think I felt it in a different lens. Um, my parents and I, we do have a great relationship. Um, I think that actually... They are one of the rare ones of their generation who openly show me love and affection. They really do. <laughs> and I, I like I didn't realize that that was almost like out of the norm, you know, until I got mm. older and I heard from like I heard these things from other people about the classic traditional Chinese parents who don't even have never said I love you, have never given them a hug, have never said I'm proud of you, things like that, right? My parents said it in abundance, but the thing that was difficult for me growing up is um, there was a cultural gap between like the freedom that a lot of kids have here in America (laughs) and what my parents afforded me as an only child, a daughter, a daughter. That is the key point because I'm a girl, you know, um, especially my mom was so, so, so strict on me about so many things. I had a curfew like in college. (laughs) <laughs> you know, because I went to, I went to uh, a school that was, you know, local, I went to USF. Uh-huh. And so I commuted from home to save money and I had a curfew, you know, I was 22. <laughs> How did they enforce that? <laughs> I mean, it was, it was one of those things where like, I felt guilty if uh-huh. I didn't like, I, I could, I could stay out past like, it was what 10 p.m. at that time, I think. I could stay out past it, but at first I would get an earful. You know, it would be just lecture, like shame. lecture town <laughs> all night long. And I just don't, you know, I didn't want to hear it. But at the same time, like I felt bad. And like at some points, like I felt guilt tripped, you know, because my mom would be like, all these things that I sacrificed, like all these things that we did for you to not be able to come home at the time <laughs> that we want you to come home. Like, why is it so hard? Uh-huh. Right. And I was like, but it's not, it's not about that. Like, I understand your sacrifices, right? I understand how hard it was to get me to this place and you want me to be safe and you don't want me to get into trouble. But at the same time, it's like, what about 
like me enjoying this life that you've given me, right? Like, do you not trust that you've raised the kid who knows what's right and wrong and, you know, these types of things. So like that part, I felt like was always a gap between me and my parents that I could like, no matter how I explained it to them, it was just like, you live under our roof. These are our rules. You have to abide by them. And for me, it's like, but you can't try to see where I'm coming from, you know? <laughs> yeah, so it was, it was yeah. that um, for me, I think. Yeah. There's that one story that Fook has when he got in a huge fight with his dad about gym socks, like <laughs> 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 the, the incomplete in a, in PE and not on the honor roll and his whole room gets thrashed and you, and you run away from home. Uh, did you, did you feel like you won, you won that in a way because you proved that you could, <laughs> I, I, I saw it as that when I read that, I was like, you know what? I think that's score one for Fook on that one. Thanks, man. That's really, uh, yeah, that's very generous. <laughs> Cause I you. bet they, I bet in their head, they, they expect you to crawl back within a day or two. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah, maybe, I mean, it wasn't really like about when, I mean, thanks. I, <laughs> at that point it wasn't, you know, I felt like it was like a pure victory almost. Like I just yeah. like, you know, for you know spoiler alert like you know uh like i my family had this rule like my parents like didn't even know what curfew was like you know i don't know if they had curfew like when they were growing up in saigon but like my parents were like they were just like well just stay on the honor roll and like you can just like do what you want and i was like sweet i was uh -huh. like awesome so like i just was like out and you know just being a hooligan and partying but i just like made sure i did well in school and um but i failed gym <laughs> long story so i failed gym and i like had like a's i had all a's and i had like an f for gym so i didn't make the honor roll and i'm like my dad like lost his mind like just like flipped his shit and then like destroyed my room and then he tried to kill me like literally like, grabbed a pair of scissors and like chased me around the house um and then i was like this is crazy like i was like i'm out so like i ran away from home and i stayed at and i like just like slept on people's couches for like two 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 weeks i think and then like my mom tracked me down and like guilt trip me back and like she called me and i was like oh and like the guilt trip like i was like fine i'm gonna come yeah, home yeah. but i was also ready to like you know sort right. of like peace out like if yeah. like things got hectic again but like the crazy thing is that like when i ran away from home and like i was just like homeless like i kept going to school and i kept doing all my homework you know like i just like so like like that's like the nerdy shit right there it's just like i could have like stayed like right. like stayed out of school and just like smoked weed and like you know watch movies but i was like no i have a geometry <laughs> I a quiz. I have a ge yeah i got a quiz <laughs> what are you guys crazy that's awesome <laughs> oh man hey let's talk about your crew a little bit because this is at the end of the your book you mentioned that the crew basically saved your life which i i guess is not just figurative yeah <laughs> in some ways it's literal but uh so how did you get i I, I read it, but how did you get into your crew? How did how did you find this this group of boys that you you really bonded with? Yeah, I mean, I it was you know it was like 1987, and like there were just there weren't that many kids. Like it, it actually was 86. There weren't that many kids who like were skateboarding, uh, and I just happened to like have bought like a used skateboard from like my neighbor, uh, and and so like some kid was like, "Hey, you have a skateboard? I have a skateboard." And I was like, "All right, cool," you know, and like that was really it. And it, like our town was like, you know, it had a pretty strong kind of like redneck hick vibe. <laughs> and so like, like those kids, you know, it was like very quickly, like, you know, the rednecks would pick on the skateboard and punk rock kids. And so all the punk rock kids and skateboard kids kind of had to band together just to protect themselves. Yeah. Uh, it was very, it was very, you know, sort of like a very early and violent introduction to like tribalism, you know, so uh, <laughs> in, in and it's middle school. So it just like, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. like super wild. 
Um, so that's how I met them. And then we just kind of like, and, and actually it was eighth grade and like, you know, like up to that point, like anytime I got bullied or like got into a fist fight, it was just like always me versus like another kid. And like, I remember like that first in eighth grade, like these like rednecks, like sort of cornered me in like the locker area. And one of my friends who was like a skateboard kid, like had my back. Yeah. And I was like, what? I was like, who does that? Like, yeah. you know, and that's, that was like the first time that like anybody ever stood up for me who like, didn't sort of have like a, you know, sort of like a dog in the fight. And yeah. I was like, Oh, this is, I mean, just like, just like sure. Like the sheer sort of pragmatism of it. I was like, okay, I guess if I hang with these guys, like I'll be safer or yeah. safe ish, you know? <laughs> yeah. But yeah. That was a really cool moment where it's like, cause as a reader, we're reading this kid and we're like, man, this kid has no hope. <laughs> it's going to be a long road for this kid. And then if I, a couple kids have your back, that's, that's pretty cool. And, and we'll, we'll read more about that as, as we go on. Um, and so you, um, you bond over music and skateboarding and hooliganism. <laughs> yeah. So much hooliganism. You'll <laughs> be small town PA, right? Yeah, like, what are you going to do? <laughs> you'll be happy to know that, uh, skateboarding and hooliganism is still alive and well here in San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. <laughs> They're still oh, no. the ones causing the trouble. <laughs> oh, that's good. But yeah, but, and yet all this time you're keeping up really stellar grades while you're doing this. <laughs> I, I, I didn't want to curve for you. <laughs> so at what point, I think it was, I forget the name of the boy, but there's one boy whose brother goes to NYU in your crew. And, and it, uh, it seems like a little light bulb goes on in your head where you're like, Hey, you can get out of this town by, by doing well in school or, or when did the, yeah. when did you realize yeah. you were smart? <laughs> yeah. I don't. Yeah. It was that when I had that conversation with that, kid um you have to forgive me like i gave everybody like fake names sure, sure. in my book so i think his name is philip in the book but anyway yeah this this kid philip um this one day like we were all gonna go skateboarding and we were like hey you want to go out and he's like no i'm gonna stay home and do homework and i was like wait what <laughs> you know and then and then he like lent me this book he's like oh you should read this book like by albert camus you know like huh you know, the stranger. And I was like, wait, you read books for fun. And like, I had been like low key, like reading books, but like, just because yeah. I was, cause like I need, I needed therapy, but I didn't know that. I just was uh -huh. like, I was just like reading books just to like not feel sad and alone, you know, but like the idea that like you could read a book and do well in school and not, you know, like I, I had thought that like punk rock was about being, you know, was, was anti-school, but it wasn't anti-education. Uh -huh. And like, there were kids in my crew who were like really smart they just like thought school was stupid, not, not being educated. Right. Um, so that was, that was really critical for me. Um, and also I saw it as like my ticket out of, t out of town. Right. Like I was like, Oh, you can go to college, you know, like, all right. Like, and that's part of why, like I kept going to high school, even though I had, had run away from home for a minute. Mm -hmm. um, because like my other friends were just either staying in town, getting jobs and just like, you know, being sort of delinquents or they would join the military, like a uh -huh. bunch of them joined the military yeah. to get out of Carlisle too. Yeah. And so you're working at the library and you, you see a copy of, uh, uh, Fadiman, or how do you say it? Fadiman? Yeah, Fadiman. Yeah. Clifton Fadiman's Clifton lifetime Fadiman's, reading. Yeah, yeah. Lifetime reading list. And you, and you, you buy it for a quarter or 50 cents. Yeah. And you just start checking them off. You just start working your way through that list. Yeah. You know, like I just thought like at, at that point, you know, like I was, you know, just sort of reading whatever books I could, because like, I thought, you know, I had realized that, um, like I was getting some kind of clout 
you know, or respect in the classroom because I was reading books that kids weren't reading. And I was like, this is so weird. Like, this makes no sense to me. Like, it's so, to me, it was just easy. And I, I and I know I take that for granted that like for some kids, like reading books is hard and it's, and I'm not, and I make no claims that like, I understood the book at all, but like, at least I took, <laughs> I did, you know, I took the time to read it. And I was like, well, I kind of remember this, this is like the plot and there's this character. Like, I don't understand like imagery or, you know, the metaphors or, symbolism or any of that but you know at least I was trying and um yeah and so like I think like the kids and my teachers really were like oh shit like you know Fuchs reading books like damn look at him go and so I just kept going you know and then I found this book that was basically like you know if you're gonna read books and like be a well-read person and and Clifton Fadiman says in the intro which really struck me when I read it because you know I just picked it up and I read the introductory like whatever five pages and it was like if you want to be an all-American girl or an all-American boy, like this is these are the books you need to read. And so I was like, well, okay, you know, like this is really bonkers. So like, this is a fun, funny fact is that like I, I and I didn't know anything about him. I didn't learn this until much, much, much later, like looking at dawn of the internet and all that stuff. Was that Clifton Fadiman was um, was also himself an immigrant, oh. and I think I don't know if it was his daughter or somebody else described him as sort of like a self-hating Jew. And that he had like sort of fabricated this um, persona as like this, like all American sort of like intellectual. Um, and part of that was creating this like lifetime reading plan. So it, it's, uh. it's just very bizarre to me that like, here was this person who was an immigrant who's trying to sort of cook up this like reading list, you know, sort of recipe for how to be an American. And it falls into my hands at a time when I'm sort of feeling most like an outsider yeah and i sort of like was like okay like i took it very literally and so i just sort of started reading it i didn't read the whole list because like you know i was just like i was like 16 15 so <laughs> I, would, I would like read like three pages and like if it was awesome i'd keep reading and if it was like boring or hard i'd stop you know so it was very immature but you know <laughs> yeah 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 I did, I did my best <laughs> and it sounds like you you were able to bond with a bunch of your teachers and a bunch of them saw something in you and uh, there's that one story of them driving you to a play. I, I you know, I, I've done that a little bit with students when I find out they're really into something. And it's like, hey, you know, why don't you try this or you know, point them to a, a another thing. Oh, describe your teachers or your relationship with your teachers a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think they're they were. Um, I mean, they were incredible. Like, you know, and I think uh, I will. I mean, that's part of why I became a teacher myself was that if I, you know, I always felt that like if I could be that person for even one kid, yeah. like it, it'll, my, my career will have been worth it. Uh, and I, I hope, I hope that I've been that, that person for at least a couple of kids, you know, like, I think my, my home life was super volatile, like pretty abusive. Um, and, you know, like, I think like the place where, you know, I, I, you know, I think about like the idea of community and the idea of like being safe and, um, you know, I think, you know, like when you, when kids want to feel seen and they want to feel valued and they want to feel understood, you know, the first place that I felt that was in school, like in a classroom, like I, I definitely did not feel that way at home, uh -huh. you know, and like, and I, and I tell people, I'm like, you know, the first people who beat me, like they weren't rednecks, they weren't racist, like they were my own family members, yeah. you know, and, and, and again, like, it's like, what, what kind of a lesson did like, does a young child learn when the people who are 
charged with their care are also the people who like beat the shit out of them. Like, yeah. uh, you know, that's a so tough message. Yeah. It is a really tough message. You know, yeah. and I, th- I thought about that during the pandemic too, um, especially when like schools were, had gone remote. Like my first thought, like, like I turned to my wife and I'm like, you know, like when I was a kid, like school was my safe place. Like I, I feel terrible for kids for whom that is the case. And now like they've got to like zoom, you know, yeah. into like their classes there were uh, sometimes, you know, we're on Zoom and we're asking a kid to turn their microphone on. Hey, can you turn on your microphone and give me the answer to number five or whatever? Kid turns on the microphone and you hear all this yelling in the background, you know, you know, three siblings screaming at each other. We're like, okay, never mind. Turn your mic back on. <laughs> you know, go ahead and mute yourself. That was the mm-hmm. reality for a lot of these kids. Yeah. 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 So we we get to graduate finally, um, all barely too. Uh, you know, uh, who was it? The kid in your book, his name was Nate. In the book, uh, did you a solid? I mean, I don't think I don't think many of us have a friend like that. You know, where you were about to fight this dude because he called you a, a, a racist name again, and you just had enough. You know, after after eighteen years of this, you were just like, all right, I'm ready. I'm going to fight this dude. I'm just going to get it over with. Well, again, it was again, you know, it was like, it was like this, I'm like, really again, you know, like, yeah. I think it was just bad because I was feeling really good. You know, like I just been nominated to speak at like yeah. high school graduation. So like, I think there's like, yeah, there's just something, you know, it only takes one hole to sink a boat, right? Uh-huh. Like and I was feeling like super good. Yeah. And then this kid was just like, told me, you know, called me some racial epithet and told yeah. me to go back to my country and i was like oh hell okay. no <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. yeah. hold yeah. my hold my backpack <laughs> <laughs> yeah totally but, but you mentioned that you know, the penalty for fighting is two weeks suspension you fail all those classes you wouldn't graduate and your friend stepped up and and first of all they held you back and said no you don't you don't want to do this yeah and you said, no, I want to do this. And then another friend said, you look, I'm not doing that great in school. Anyway. <laughs> I'm just going to, I'm going to fight this guy for you. That's pretty cool, man. Yeah, it was pretty incredible. I mean, I, you know, I mean, it was pretty basic math, right? He's like, well, I'm going to summer school anyway. <laughs> you know, he's just like, he's like return on investment. He's like looking at me. You yeah, know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, what's really funny is that, um, you know, just, just, it goes to show like how, how significant and how powerful that moment was for me. So, you know, when I was doing research on the book, because I really did try to get like, you know, the timelines and all the stories, right? And um, so I went back to Carlisle in 2017, I think, 18, when I was doing research, like I met with like my teachers and like, you know, like, you know, and I went out for beers with all those guys, including my friend Nate. And and I was just, you know, sort of like, oh, like, you know, tell me some other stories that you guys remember, you know, because that might jog my memory. And so I, you know, at at that little gathering, it was like maybe like six of us. I, yeah. I say to Nate, I'm like, hey, remember that time that like I, you know, it was like two weeks before graduation. And I was going to fight that redneck and like you stepped up and you got kicked out of school for it. And he didn't remember it like <laughs> at all. He had like no recollection. I was like, are you kidding me? So it was just like, ama- it's just amazing to me th- to think that like it was such a momentous, you know, yeah. sort of event for me. And like for Nate, it was just like another Thursday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, it's interesting, too, that these are your boys. These these guys would, you know, ride or die is what we say now for these guys. Yeah, for sure. And yet, there were some micro little things that they would say or remind you that you were a little bit othered, you know, by them. And I also like that 
you know, there's these blatant racism things, but the, the other subtle ones were that other, the guy who interviewed you for uh, Penn, the uh, assistant principal, was kind of like, well, you're pretty good, but you're not as good as the other Asians, basically. <laughs> you know, he's, like, yeah. he's like, you're pretty solid, but, you know, compared to the other Asians we know, you're not that great. Like, those yeah. sorts of things maybe grinded at you even more, yeah? Like, when your yeah. friends kind of do it or... Yeah, yeah, and for, you know, and I think I think you know from the seventies and the eighties, you just kind of roll with it, you know. And again, like in sort of like the grand hierarchy of like, well, like there's there are rednecks who are like literally trying to like beat the shit out of me, and then there's just like this like principal who's just like being low key racist. Like I was like, I'll take that, like whatever, you yeah, know. Yeah. But but I mean, like, so like here's like just sort of like a weird thing, like when you grow up in a town and go to a high school where like there just aren't that aren't any or many other Asian kids. Like I never knew that like there was like the stereotype that like Asians were good at math. Like I just <laughs> you're the only one. That that was... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I was kind of terrible at math. But like but also I was the only one and there was nobody else around. Like there was nobody there was like no sort of uh you know critical mass of people to like create a stereotype. So it was kind of wild. Like so in some ways like it was, I felt really unencumbered. I was just like I don't know, like I'm trailblazing, like I'm just going to do what the fuck I want, you know. <laughs> I'm a unicorn, yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> like there was no really like a, like the first time like I remember I was like I think it was like in I don't know, it was like it was either oh, it was when like the the Time magazine cover came out. Do you remember that? It was like in the it was like 89, 90. There was a Time magazine cover and it was literally like it was all about like Asian whiz kids. Oh, I don't remember. Yeah, you can Google it. It's like yeah, so, yeah. it's so racist. It's uh-huh. dumb. Like, and I like, I remember looking at seeing that in the library and I'd be like, what's this? What? What's the other? <laughs> yeah, there are others. Wait. I was like, we're whiz kids. <laughs> you know, like, like, oh, man. It was so funny. Like, I learned about that from Time Magazine. I was like, wait, what? But then, like, I'm reading, it's like these kids were like going to like Chinese school and like taking violin lessons, you yeah. know, and like perfect SAT scores. Totally, totally. You know, it's like, a, and it didn't, it really, like, nobody has articulated better than like Ali Wong. Like, she does that bit about like fancy Asians and yeah. jungle Asians, you know, which, yes. you know, yeah. like, I didn't know that at the time. I'm like, yeah. okay, I'm a jungle Asian. I get it. <laughs> Oh man, yeah, that's funny. So you go off to college, though. This we're getting out of the book territory here. We're, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you end up going to Bard College, uh, another small town, upstate New York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not part of the plan for sure. Well, that was just like a financial plan, right? Like it was yeah. like you go where you can afford to go. Yeah. Um, so I did get into NYU, but like it was kind of like they were like low key, like you because like they like accepted me and then like gave me like no money to go yeah. they were just like take out loans and my right. dad was like oh, no we're not taking out loans yeah so, yeah yeah well he probably was pretty smart <laughs> to not do that yeah for sure for sure <laughs> so you go in there and i heard this on your ted doc so you go in there as a literature and art major your two things that you think you are the best at in your life and you realize for sure. I don't really like this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh no. Yeah, I just went to these classes and I hated them. Like, and I really uh, like, you know, and part of it was like the kids, you know, like that the kids I found like super pretentious in the classes and like I wasn't connecting with the teachers. And, you know, like I, uh, like I really went to college to like be a student and like yeah. just go, like go ham, you know, on like my courses. And like there were kids who were like skipping classes. Or like not, you know, I was like, 
who skips classes? You, I was like, do you guys know how expensive you're this paying for is? This? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, totally, totally. Uh-huh. You know, but they were just like fancy, like rich kids. And, uh-huh. and so like, it just made no sense to me. Um, and so I just ended up bailing on English and art as majors. And then I just ended up taking like ancient Greek on a whim. Uh, <laughs> and then like, just fell in love with it. <laughs> it was, you know? Yeah. And then Sanskrit and Latin. Yeah. I, you know, I'll say this didn't, this didn't come up in the Ted dog, but I'll say this, you know, like, I think, um, you, you know, like those classes, like they're so hard, like you, you can't fake it. You know, it's very much like math, you know, like you, uh, which, you know, I'm terrible at, but like, you can't fake being like, you, you can fake your way through like art, you know, and <laughs> English, uh-huh. you know, to some degree, uh-huh. but like, you really can't fake your way through math. Like you either know it or you don't. Right. right? right. And, and like, you, there's no like bullshitting your way out of like, well, you know, this actually means or blah, blah, blah. It's like science too. Right. Like you either yeah. know the Krebs cycle or you don't. And so like, it, it's the closest I've ever come to a meritocracy, you know, like, and uh-huh. I know that there are problems with that, but like, you know, I was rolling in there as like a jungle Asian kid, you know, uh-huh. and there were these kids who had like gone to like fancy, like boarding schools and like, you know, East coast elite schools, you know, with like blazers and they summer at Martha's Vineyard uh-huh. and it didn't matter. Like, it just didn't matter. Like, you know, it just mattered how hard you worked. And yeah. so like, it, it was really, you know, there were like, I saw a very clear return on my right. efforts, you yeah. know? And I was like, okay, like, this is what I'm doing, I guess. That was your jam. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. Fun fact: I took two years of Latin in high school. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. And now you're bio- biology I hated teacher, it. right? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I hated buddy. It. Sorry. <laughs> oh, man. It's okay. Oh man. So you're teach. So you end up teaching Latin in the high school level in the in the Portland yeah. area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I taught. I taught for like seven years in New York City, and then when we moved here to Payne, I kept teaching um, Latin. Yep, and then tattooing at night you know because that, that that makes sense right yeah right. where did that come from so you you, you like drawing you like doodling you're, you're pretty good at it but where did the tattooing come from i mean the the tattoos like started off really in the skateboard and punk rock scene you know uh-huh. like all of my friends were getting tattoos i just was like not you know it was expensive so i just didn't have the money to do it um and then when i got to college this is a, this is a true story like my parents had given me like a credit card just as like an emergency like you know <laughs> Like if you, if anything terrible happens, like you use the credit card and we'll talk about it later. But I discovered that it had a cash advance function. Which <laughs> I was like, what is this? I was like, this is free money. It's so like I was money, taking yeah. money out and like getting tattoos with it in college. And then, uh, yeah. So, and, and then through grad school, I kept getting tattooed with my own money. Like, and then, um, yeah. And then at some point, like in grad school, the guy who was tattooing me was just like, this is like in the mid nineties. He was like, Hey, you know, like you should, you ever think about being a tattooer? Like you're really into the lifestyle, you know, cause it's just at the time, not that many people were getting tattooed. Um, so I, I was like maybe like two or three months from graduating, you know, from uh, UMass with my master's. And um, so I just applied for the tattoo apprenticeship in New York city. Uh, and I got it. And they were just like, yeah, you want to learn how to be a tattooer? Just move to New York city. And I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and that's yep. the system they there's no there's no tattoo college you just go to apprentice no. yeah. yeah yeah you just go and like yeah just you know get go be the peon at a tattoo shop for you know like a year and then yeah and then you work your way up uh, pay your dues yeah very cool very cool all right man so we end the segment i don't know if you've prepared this at all but you can think about it and take your time um so we end the segment with uh this thing we call who is your infatuation it's like someone that you admire, you think of from the Asian community that it could be Asian, Asian, could be Asian American. 
anyone you admire from the community. Do you have a infatuation? Uh, living, dead, historical. Could, yeah, 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 yeah. All fair game. <laughs> yeah, all of it. Oh man, I mean, like I think like your first love, right? Like your first love's your true love, like Bruce Lee. Oh, oh my god. Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like just so funny and charming, and just yeah. And for, yeah, yeah. for dudes in in our age range, <laughs> there there wasn't anybody else either. Yeah, yeah. Also, nobody else. But yeah, <laughs> I mean, definitely, he was the whole package, you know. Yeah. And like the more you know, you the more you learn about him, the more like the more you respect him i for right. me anyway the more i respect him yeah um, yeah that yeah, era like, no way yeah what cool. a trailblazer yeah yeah we uh shout out to the california chinese historical society society here in san francisco there's a bruce lee exhibit well if you're out in the bay area come on by all right book tran thank you for talking to us for uh for over an hour here thanks for coming yeah along. Yeah, Curtis Bellina, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, yeah uh, I hope fun. you didn't have to. I hope you didn't have to bleep out too much. <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll see. I got a little work ahead of me, but that's yeah. cool. That's cool. No, right. Thank yeah. you for uh, for uh, coming along, and everyone out there, if you want a copy of Saigon S I G H comma G O N E, uh, you can get it. Uh, support your local bookstores, of course, uh, but you can always get it on Amazon or. Uh, tell your local library to get. You're a big fan of libraries, so I know that that would be big something you, yeah. you'd be okay with. Uh, ask your library to get a copy of the book. It's a great read. It is. Um, how long, Belina? How long did it take you to read it? Three days. Yeah, it's a it quick one. Yeah. Nice. It was a wow, guys, really, you guys ripped through it. I'm yeah, really it was, impressed. It was. It was I mean, it really kept my interest. Um, oh, thanks. I re- I love the way that you write. So reading it was so enjoyable. Oh, thanks, Belina. Yeah, and thanks, Curtis. Yeah, yeah. So, are you uh, working on uh, Saigon Two or <laughs> no? Actually, there's a kids book coming out. Yeah, <laughs> I think I yeah, saw. Yeah, that's yeah. Long story, but yeah, yeah. I have a I have a kids book series that's coming out, but not until 2024. Uh, and I'm taking notes on a novel. You know, I think like Saigon Part Two. I'm not sure if that has like the narrative tension that the first part <laughs> yeah, has. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't know if anybody wants to read the chapter where like, you know, the big narrative tension is like. Can Fook refinance his mortgage to take advantage <laughs> of historically low interest rates? What will happen? <laughs> Keep reading to find out. <laughs> no, Belina. Belina just raised her hand. Oh, come on. <laughs> She's in line. She, she'd buy that. All right. So, uh, so yeah, still going to do some writing. and uh, Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, yeah, no, we'd love to read it. So Thanks. Thanks, guys. Um, any any socials we should give out there you have a just instagram yeah just my instagram yeah Fook skywalker <laughs> yeah <laughs> on we, instagram That's we it. like puns around here too so p-h-u-c skywalker on instagram uh hey belina thank you for hanging out with us today that was fun yeah thanks for having me this was awesome i think we're gonna hear you again too so stay tuned everyone and everyone out there thanks for listening i hope you guys learned something and are going to get a copy of this book. Uh, as as mentioned, uh, or as we always mention, you can get in touch with us at infatuationpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Instagram at the Infatuation Podcast. And all these details we'll put in the show notes. If you are out there listening, we hope that you're all happy, healthy, and safe out there. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye. 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 <laughs> Thanks. 